0: The next question we have deals with um, mechanics of Kriya Pranayama. Uh, So do I maintain the root lock at all the time while pulling the energy up the spine and then release it as I let my breath out? Um, The way I typically do it is do the root lock, pull the current up the spine, and then let it flow out. So... Even when I'm doing Kriya Pranayama, not just the um, life force arousal technique, I do find myself, I do find myself doing uh, a gentle root lock before circulating the life force up through the spine. However, when I release the current back down through the spine, let the breath go down, and have that that feeling, that sensation of. Um, the warm soothing flow moving back down through the spine using that kind of body awareness it may be that the root lock is just slightly engaged but mostly i let it relax i let everything relax and let it flow back down now next question on the last repetition i've been experimenting with holding my attention at the sixth and seventh chakra in both there's a slight difference in sensation however it's not that big enough to decide which one is correct uh, mostly what you need to do is just get your awareness up into the higher brain centers. You're getting it up into the higher brain centers. Um, you can experiment. There are times when I bring it all the way up to the crown and I hold it there. There are times when I bring it to the spiritual eye and I hold it there. There are times when I don't even func- uh, focus on the spiritual eye or the crown. I just hold the whole kind of top portion of my brain and skull in my awareness as I'm pulling the... the the life force up through the nervous system and illuminating the whole brain or the the whole top part of the brain. So you can choose what you like. Uh, Just do one at a time, meaning don't go back and forth. If you're going to do Kriya Pranayama where you're pulling it up to the sixth chakra, do that for the duration of this particular practice. If you're pulling it up to the crown, do that for the duration of this practice. Some people can't even get their awareness clear up beyond anything higher than the fourth fifth chakra and that's normal and so if you have difficulty doing that for a little while you can just experiment with just pulling it up as as far as you can up to the heart up to the throat ideally for the maximum benefit you pull it all the way up to the higher brain centers and let it flow back down if you have difficulty getting it up through the throat chakra and into the sixth chakra and, and above You just stay circulating it as much as you can, aiming to have it, imagine that it's actually going further up into the sixth chakra, until in time it will become natural to pull it all the way up. I can remember uh, early on having difficulty uh, pulling it all the way up through the chakras. It seemed like I couldn't quite get it past the throat area. I couldn't get the, the feeling sensation through the throat area. So I just pulled it up as far as I could over the course of months, eventually got so that it was higher and then back down and higher until it can go all the way to the crown. The whole point of this is circulating the life force upwards from the lower chakras, internalizing it upwards. So you go as you can, you rest where you are, and let the experience be what it is. Another question deals with restricting the throat. So when you do the throat lock and you're tightening the throat, The question deals with constricting the throat lower down or trying to constrict it higher up, like in the the back part of the nasal cavity. I can see how that would happen. Uh, I've never really experimented with constricting it higher up in the nasal cavity. Although, um, mainly you need to focus on having it striking the back part of the throat and just... Practicing the constricting higher up. It doesn't feel like it's hitting the right point. So what I would say is constrict the throat lower down, direct the awareness to the back of the throat. Feel that coolness and associate that coolness with the flow going upwards. So sensations that arise during the practice. There's all kinds of sensations that can arise during the practice. Um, As described here, you could maybe see, many people see geometric patterns in their mind's eye. Some people do see points of light or glimpses of light. Some people experience uh, particular kinds of vibrations in traditional yogic literature there are descriptions of particular sounds that are associated with each chakra so when you're really internalized meaning you've truly let go of uh, external distractions and all you are aware of is what's going on inside you can become aware of things like the buzzing of bees the sound of a harp or a flute or the roar of an ocean and those can be distractions if you stay there, if you hang out on them for a long time. But if you experience them, you can use them as points of focus to absorb your awareness there, knowing that in time you have to let go of that too. So the things that you experience internally, they're not necessarily all distractions. They can be very useful because they give you something to focus on. And we have to remember the whole point of this process is to internalize your awareness rest it inward. So if something arises that allows you to fully engage your awareness inward, stay there with it. Get into it. Absorb yourself in it. And do that for a little while until now you have the experience of being that kind of internalized. But then when it comes up again and you're comfortable there, you've already been able to focus on it. Now you use that as a like a stepping stone as an anchor and you try to go even further within or further upward or deeper into the process or you inquire what is beyond this we use whatever we can to internalize our awareness and those become our anchor points the things that we can hold on to like when you're rock climbing you have to hold on to the rock to get to the top <laughs> and you have to hold on to you have to get uh You have to get situated in each hold at a time and comfortable there, usually, before you move on to the next one. But eventually you have to let go of the previous one so that you can pull yourself up. In a way, this is how uh, inner experiences work. The danger is always getting lost in the inner experiences. So you have to be consciously aware of that as a possibility and always moving beyond it, moving through it. Because often when people say they're meditating well and they, they, Oh, I just had a wonderful meditation and you ask them what they were aware of. Oh, I don't know. I just zoned out. Well, they've, they've latched onto something and they've kind of lost themselves in it. They've lost themselves in it so you never want to lose yourself so much in it that you're not still present uh, and that's why we have this idea of keep keeping moving through it keeping for moving forward what is beyond this inquiring what is beyond this until eventually you just strike a a point where you are pristinely aware and you and when you come out of it you don't forget it you don't you can't describe where you've been or what you've experienced but it is a very clear obvious, conscious experience, and you were present the whole time. Uh, The difficulty arises when people, they just, it's because of how meditation is taught as a relaxation technique. They mistake the deep relaxation and sometimes almost trance-like state for it. Um, When the purpose of spiritual realization and clarifying awareness you will be pristinely awake and present. Even if you can't describe it, even if you can't relate it with words, even if you can't write it down or talk about it, you just know. It's like an experience you've had that you wish you could explain it to somebody, but there's no way you can. But you know you were, you were present the whole time. You, you weren't gone. <clears throat> Uh, The blue ball visualization. This is how Yogananda taught it. This is how Roy Jean Davis taught it. Um, Blueness. uh, That's oftentimes why you see Hindu deities portrayed with blue skin. Why are they blue? That's weird. Um, Well, it's supposed to represent the blueness of the sky, the expansiveness, the clarity, the um the unboundedness of the sky. So I've never really, I don't know if blue is uh, something specific that you have to use. I just, that's what I was taught. That's what I've done. So I do it that way. I don't know if there's any neurological reason for it. Like, for example, when you breathe through the mouth and the, the air strikes the back of the throat. Well, when I first learned Kriya Pranayama, I didn't know that. I just knew this is what my teacher taught. This is what I'm going to do. I feel the sensation. It allows me to feel it in the spine. It's good. It was only later that I talked to a neuroscientist that explained, well, when the, the air strikes those particular nerves in the throat, it tends to help to balance the nervous system and the brain and contribute to higher states of consciousness. So maybe there's something with blueness. I don't know what it is, um, but I've always done it. And that's just that. Um, Sometimes when I sit for meditation, even before I start the meditation techniques, I feel complete silence and depth. Should I stay in it or carry on with the techniques? Mr. Davis would always say, if you sit down and you're already there, if you're already present, if you're already abiding in that depth, that's all you need to do. And as Yogananda would say, uh, the meditation techniques are tools to accomplish a goal. And once you've accomplished the goal, you put the tools down. Um, Just like when you're building a house, once your house is built, you don't have to keep carrying around your hammer and your saw and your level. You can just walk into your house. Uh, So if you have that as a experience that you are able to sit and it is silent and you are present and you are aware It is perfectly fine to just stay there as long as possible. That's really wonderful. Um, I typically recommend, and I remember hearing Mr. Davis say this too, that uh, it's okay to go ahead and do the techniques just for the uh, tuning of the body, maintaining of the nervous system, in the same way that you might be strong and you go to the gym and you don't really need to do anything to feel that strength, uh, but you go through your routine anyway so that you maintain that process. You maintain that level of physicality. So when people sit and they experience that silence and that depth, um, Mr. Davis would say, just be with it. And I say the same thing. However, at some point in that depth and in that silence, it's not going to hurt you to go ahead and go through the routine. Just do it in depth and in silence. And that's a very wonderful, useful thing to do because that's a very easy way to train you how to be active in that state of depth and silence so that when you're in your life, you can remember that depth and silence as you do everything that you have to do. And if you are truly in a state of depth and silence, then it won't matter what the mind and body is doing. You can do it as duty. So if you're already there, stay there enjoy it, be present with it. Uh, But for the sake of the lifetime's worth of work, before you finish, go ahead and do your Kriya Pranayamas. Go ahead and do Jyoti Mudra. Because often what you find is if you are already in a state of depth and silence, and you abide there, and from that point, then you do the Kriya Pranayama and the techniques it takes you someplace you weren't even aware of was possible. And then you really say, wow, that depth and silence I thought I had, Hmm. I guess it was a little deeper. I guess I could go a little deeper with it. And I can remember, uh, this is a little off topic and not quite related, but I can remember probably somewhere between six and seven years into my own practice uh, I had about a month of time where I thought, wow, I am, I am, I am so awake. It is beautiful. And I thought, why am I even meditating anymore? I don't need to meditate anymore. This, is, this isn't necessary. So there was actually a month of time uh, in the last 20 years where I didn't officially sit down and do techniques. And I can remember meeting with Mr. Davis at the end of that month, and I told him what I was experiencing. And he just said, well, even Lahiri Mahasaya, after he was established in uh, self-realization, continued to do his meditation practices as a duty. (laughs) That was all he said. So I took it to mean, just keep going. And that's when I experienced what we're talking about here, where if you're already in a place of depth and clarity, then really engaging the process, you'll see. sometimes during meditation i feel that my involuntary that i might let's see let me read this sometimes during meditation i feel that i, I involuntarily tighten the upper part of my throat ears scalp nasal cavities when this happens, a sound appears i do not believe that this is the own vibration since when it happens i can turn it on and off what are your thoughts on that um, never heard of that before uh, but i have heard of and have experienced it myself that during meditation, people will experience sensations in their body, sometimes they get hot, sometimes various muscles will twitch, sometimes um, they'll have like spontaneous movements of the body, and I brought that up to Mr. Davis, and he said that when, that, when you become aware of that kind of situation, um, it's okay, observe it, but then consciously relax, relax it. So if you find your upper throat, muscles, ears, and scalp getting tightened or tense, consciously breathe in and let it relax. Breathe in and let it relax. People talk about having these these like you know, kundalini bursts or there's a name for it. I can't remember it right now. Um, spontaneous. Uh, is it spontaneous kundalini movements? Or, there's a specific word for it. Um, but these kinds of things happen when you start to relax. And they start to happen when life force theoretically starts to move more fully through that processing unit of your nervous system. And if you have traumas or injuries or just tightness uh, or a lack of circulation or um, you're just holding on to whatever it may be, no, it's not kundalini awakening. Um, I don't really get into that anyway. It's, it's like, a, they call it a spontaneous kriyas. That's it, yeah. It's like a spontaneous kriya, a spontaneous action. Uh, but when you start to relax, your body will twitch and will move because it's like channels are opening up and life force is moving where it might not have been before. Um, I can remember doing some various kinds of um, internalization training and certain parts of my body all of a sudden became very tight or it became sore for a few days after. And I learned that I simply just had to consciously bring awareness there and relax it and return to my practice. And in time that dissipated. So if these things happen, um, you want to consciously let the body relax a little bit more. And this is also a big reason why exercise is helpful moving the body regularly is helpful because it helps to keep it helps to keep the nerves the vessels the tissues it helps to move out traumas that's why doing deep breathing helps to free you from uh, conditioning that's held within the cellular level of the body but this is primarily why things like hatha yoga are advised to be practiced daily and in an ideal world you would do 10 to 15 minutes of of Hatha yoga practice before your meditation, and do maybe five to 10 minutes of Shavasana, laying down in corpse pose, and doing complete total body relaxation. Because if there are things that need worked out or moved, that's the time to be bouncing around and jiggling and having things twitch. Um, But the more you do that, the more you're able to settle into your body and those things don't happen. So there is a reason why Hatha yoga, and exercise is so important. And even getting things like regular massage or body work if you need it. Because if you're working that out already, then when you sit to meditate, you're not going to have these things kind of happen. You're not going to um, be distracted by them. So there's a very good reason why taking care of the body needs to be done. It's, it's, it's like your car. There's a reason why you change the oil you change the timing belt at the appropriate time. There's a reason why you check the shocks, that you keep the air um, at the proper level within the tires. It's not that you're glorifying the car, it's that the car serves a purpose for you while you're in this lifetime to get you from point A to point B and so on. Well, the body does the same thing. And to run around saying, well, I'm not the body, it doesn't matter. Some people can pull that off. Ramana Maharshi, okay, he's a great example. But most of us, just like 99% of the people who, who are going to wake up spiritually, it's not going to happen in what you might call an awakening experience um, because those are fleeting, and most of the time they're just a burst of hormones or a switch in the nervous system, and they're not permanent. They don't stick with you, but they can be um, stepping stones to give you glimpses into what is possible, like someone opening a door saying, hey, look in there. You do your work, you can go in there. Um, Most people have incremental awakening. Uh, Mr. Davis talked about that. I wish I had the, might've been in one of the truth journals. He talks about how he never had any spontaneous aha moments where all of a sudden the secrets of the universe were revealed to him. But he said that he's noticed that over the years, his awareness became clearer, calmer, his ability to understand spiritual literature, ideals, and philosophy became brighter. And it just happened a little at a time, a little at a time over the course of decades. Well, if you compare, you know, 80-year-old Roy Eugene Davis to 18-year-old Roy Eugene Davis, level of awareness and understanding, if you just jumped from 18 to 80, bam, of course, it would seem like some amazing experience. Um, But most, most of us, What we're going to find is by doing it every day, things get better and you're going to find that to be true in life and in general, you know, you've heard me use this analogy before. Uh, I saw a little cartoon of a a person wanting to learn to play the violin and um, they came to lessons and he said to the teacher, well, I want to learn to play the violin and the teacher said, okay, we're going to learn how to play Mary had a little lamb on this string. Simple. And then the student said, Yeah, but what do I have to do to be able to play like that? And pointed to some virtuoso violin player. <laughs> you know, they wanted to do that right now. Uh, when you are learning anything, a musical instrument, you start with the basics. And then as time goes on, 50, 40 years later, you're considered a master. And that is why Yogananda was referred to as master. And that is why um, spiritual teachers are referred to as master not because they're better than you, but because they've mastered the work. If you meet someone who's a master um, engineer or a master carpenter or a master um, musician, it's because they've done the work. So uh, we have to remember that realistically, these things just, it just takes time and it takes work. And if you do it right, You experience it. And that's very important to to keep in mind. Um, Talking about the homework I gave you about what are meaningful and what are are not meaningful purposes. Well, I had some interesting responses to that. Some people send in these lists of things that are obviously meaningful. I don't think I've gotten one yet (laughs) that made me go, that's not meaningful, um, I'm not sure if it was because it, there was misunderstanding in what I was trying to get at there, but you've heard me discuss this previously, so all of you are doing great you're 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 well on the route to being a perfect saint, uh, but I did have two extreme responses to it: one was, "I can't see anything as meaningless uh, that just does I can't accept that, and the other person was, "I think everything is meaningless." <laughs> So I had to laugh out loud when I saw this. It's just because of personality uh, differences. And that's the problem. Um, being too caught up in the personality uh, personality preferences, even those ones that we think are spiritual, um, d- doesn't allow us to really face the work that we need to do. There are, I believe, uh, I'm trying to think of the exact terminology. So there's karma. And... Um, I don't remember the exact words, but there's karma. I think there's akarma and vikarma. I need, to, I need to look up those terms. But one is karma, action, appropriate action, dutiful action. That's really what karma is. Karma itself is just appropriate action. There's um, harmful action. I think that's vikarma, uh, the, the, which goes counter to what you're about. And then there's useless action. Action it doesn't really matter one way or the other. And um, there are these things, they are defined. And when it comes to what we're talking about with spiritual realization, there are those three things. There's either something that's not doing what contributes to the work at hand, which is useless. There's that which is the work at hand, the karma that you are here to do, which is anything that contributes to your spiritual awakening. And then there's actually harmful karma, karma that goes counter to it, that's counterproductive to it. And, um, one teacher described these, he said, you know, in the beginning, um, many of us are engaged in harmful karmas. And so our first stage is to diminish the harmful karmas, the things which get in the way, which really go counter to our, our, our goals here, um, And then once we get that under control, then we put more attention to our dutiful karma, that which we know is true, which is listed in the Bhagavad Gita, the Yoga Sutras, in the courses that you've taken with me, um, in the teachings of Kriya Yoga. Uh, And then there are useless karmas, things that don't really contribute but don't really pull away from it. However, um, once you get past the negative, detrimental karma, then you start cutting out the useless stuff so that you get more and more specific to just doing duty all the time, and it becomes a joy to do that. And again, you can relate this to anything. As a musician, uh, you can sit down and you can practice well, useful, constructive, moving towards the pure expression of music through your instrument. Um, you can have things which aren't useful, which are maybe poor posture or poor technique or things that you just do over and over again that become ingrained in you that when it comes time to demonstrate mastery or to play beautifully for people, it holds you back because you've done it wrong for so long. And then there's useless karma, the stuff that doesn't really contribute to um, the growth of, of your understanding and embodiment of music. So in, in all in everything, there's that. We can look at that in cooking. If you're trying to like fry a catfish, there are things that allow you to fry that catfish well and there are things that will take you away from it so you don't even get to it and the catfish spoils and there are things which are contrary to it, like adding the wrong spices or burning it. So on the self-realization path, eventually we have to admit, yes, there are useless things. Uh, There are things which uh, we need to give more attention towards. There are things which are detrimental and it can be hard for us to recognize that Um, when it's just our own little personality trying to figure it out because we have our own preferences and that's the hard, hard bit. But that all comes down to um, the idea of respect for the teaching and the teacher. I can think of maybe three things that uh, I came up against with Mr. Davis, which which he told me, you know, this is what we need to do here. And I was like, I don't know about that. And I resisted it. I did it anyway, because I trusted him. But deep down inside, of the, I'm not sure. I, I'm just doing this because I, I trust you, but I don't really believe it. And sure enough, two, three, four years later, I saw why he said and recommended what he did. But most of the time in my relationship with Mr. Davis, I didn't question what he said. And maybe it's because I'm a fool. I don't know. But that's sort of how I function. When I meet people who are successful in what they do, I listen to what they say. I don't sit there and do all the research and try to question why and so on, back and forth. Um, If I see that they're successful and I trust them, I do what they say and get the results. So um, we have to, we have to really think about these things. And when we have that kind of spectrum of, of, you know, nothing is meaningful, everything is meaningful. Oftentimes when there's that kind of extreme and maybe a slight resistance to just doing what you were told, (laughs) we need to kind of question what about our personality is preventing us from considering that as as true or as uh, necessary. And of course, it may be that you just don't trust or really you don't trust your guide. And if you don't trust your guide, we need to find a new one. Um, because the whole process uh, requires some sort of uh, mutual um, mutual understanding in that regard. This episode of the Kriya Yoga podcast was made possible by donations from Kriya Yoga apprenticeship students and supporters of our Patreon community at www.patreon.com forward slash Kriya Yoga.